So we're in Joshua chapter 24 this morning. Joshua chapter 24. And uh, it says here, Joshua 24, 1 through 5, but that's not... It's basically uh, most of the chapter that we'll be looking at, even though it's going to be a flyover for, for a lot of it. This chapter is recorded, of course, it's the end of the book of Joshua, so a lot of things have happened, the division of the land and so on and so forth have happened since the taking of Jericho that we looked at last week. Uh, Joshua, at the end of this chapter, Joshua uh, dies, and uh, there's a, rec- a record of also, the elders that were with him, those they passed away as well. And uh, it kind of ends on a, a bit of a, a gloomy note, I suppose, although there's a note of hope in there as well. The gloomy note is that it says that the people served the Lord for as long as Joshua was alive and the elders, which means that, of course, once he had passed on, they uh, stop serving the Lord, and then you get into what? The book of Judges. And the book of Judges is, uh, you know, it's a great book, but it doesn't make the most uh, uplifting reading because it speaks about not only the apostasy of the people of Israel, but uh, the, the splintering of the tribes of Israel. I mean, they're even fighting against each other. It's, uh, it's a, a really about the worst time in the history of Israel through the book of Judges. We won't be visiting the book of Judges, by the way. Uh, Great book, though, it is in this series. The note of hope, though, at the end of the book of Joshua has to do with Joseph's bones. The bones of Joseph are brought and they are buried in, in Israel. The reason that there's a note of hope there is because Joseph knew that God would be as good as his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he would give that land to the people of Israel at last. And so, in token of that, he wanted his bones to be buried in that promised land. We may not see the fulfillment of all of God's promises to us in this life. But we can be absolutely certain that those promises will come to fruition exactly the way that God has promised them to us. We will be the recipients of God's grace. We will be the recipients of of God's everlasting kindness. Uh, We will find peace. We will find joy. And those things will not be fleeting. they, They will never pass away. They'll come to us. And they'll come to us because of who God is. They'll come to us because to be in the presence of God and be fellowshipping with God, not at a distance, so to speak, as we are right now in these um, sinful bodies, but to be glorified and for sin to be done away with, uh, to be in the presence of God like that means joy. It means peace. And it, all of the other things that are uh, opposed to that, 
can never enter into that environment again. So our promises in the new covenant are greater even than the promise of a land to Israel that Joseph understood. But Joshua chapter 24 is, uh, is basically the story of uh, Joshua's rehearsal to the people of Israel of God's goodness to them in the first half of the chapter, the people's response, and then a surprising kind of twist in uh, the story with uh, Joshua's response. And it's that twist that is uh, kind of the major aspect of this sermon. What Joshua does is that he rehearses from verses 2 down to verse 15. This is at a town called Shechem. And he rehearses the history, just quickly, of their travels from the Exodus all the way through to the present, oh, the day that uh, Joshua was speaking to them. And there are good things there. The escape, for example, in verses 6 and 7, in a miraculous way from the forces of Egypt through the the, uh, deliverance in the Red Sea. Who can forget that? Then also, in verses 9 and following, the way that God also delivered the people out of the hand of Balak and of Balaam. There's no insertion there, by the way, of, uh, yes, but do we remember that? that uh, part about Baal Peor, you know, where the people basically gave up the worship of the Lord and they went over to worship the pagan gods. There's no insertion of that in this rehearsal. This is just the rehearsal of God bringing them through. Okay? doesn't mention the bad things, the sins, just he mentions the way that God had been faithful. And that, of course, includes the taking of Jericho in verse 11 and so on. How God had been good to them. Now, we can learn an important lesson from God's here rehearsal of the past uh, to Israel. God, he sees our sins. He sees when we mess up. And boy, do we mess up. Speaking personally, I'm so fed up. I'm so fed up with me. Okay? I really am. I'm so fed up with me. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not a a person who can follow in the example of Christ for too long before I mess up again. I'm like the Apostle Paul in this only. He was far ahead of me in nearly everything else. But in this only, I understand what Paul says. You know, when he's so frustrated with himself in Romans chapter 7. Where, who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? Who's going to change me so that I no longer 
serve sin so easily? Because his response is my response. I thank Christ Jesus that that actually has been done. Which means this. It means that in God's rehearsal of the life of Paul Hennebury, or your life, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, he's going to record how he has been faithful, how he's, how he's brought me through. He's not going to bring up, praise God, he's not going to bring up all of those things where I was unfaithful to him. Do you understand that? You know, there's an extraordinary passage in the New Testament which speaks about, well, I won't go there because we, uh, I don't want to, we've got lots to do, but, but uh, it's in James and it, it speaks about Lot. And it calls Lot righteous Lot who vexed his soul. But he calls him righteous. I am blown away by that. Because Lot seemed to have Lot in mind when he chose to go close to Sodom and Gomorrah. And those cities. His, he wasn't thinking spiritually, he was thinking pragmatically. Oh, this looks like a, you know, the best place to be, the best place to, to uh, flourish, so I'm going to go there. I'm going to go as close to the world as I can. Hardly righteous, you would think. And yet, God, looking back on this, doesn't raise that as an issue against him. He calls him righteous. Hey, if, if Lot can be called righteous... I stand a chance. If, if Lot can be called righteous by the God of the universe, you and I are righteous in God's sight because of God's grace. This is what it means that God will not bring up those things that are forgiven in Jesus Christ, that were left at the foot of the cross. Do you understand that? So there's the rehearsal. It doesn't mean that there's no responsibility. In verse 15, we read this. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. There's always a choice. There's always a choice for those called of God uh, to serve God which involves a certain path, a certain direction, and a certain uh, submission to God's will and also to God's providence or to another path where we're going to decide independently of, of God, independently of prudence, independently of, of uh what is right for us, and we're going to go as close to the world as we can, thinking that we can be, we can avoid the world. So we have to choose, and we also have to put up with whatever comes of that. 
Do you see? It is not so much, please don't get me wrong, it is not so much that evil stays away from us when we choose to serve God. Please don't be that simplistic. There are preachers out there who say, yes, you serve God and everything will come out just fine. All of your dreams will come true and God will just bless you and pour blessings on you. Don't believe it, okay? You've read the Apostle Paul's life. You've read what he said about himself there. What about Jesus? A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. What about Hebrews chapter 11 and the people that suffered and had to endure for righteousness sake? So it doesn't mean that when we, um, when we sorry, choose to go the right way and serve God, that evil stays away from us. Sometimes that invites evil and difficulty. Sometimes it invites the attentions of Satan. But in doing that, we know and we can be content with the fact that we are in God's will. And that God is with us and that uh, our, our consciences don't have to accuse us. Choosing the other way is not so easy, is it? Even though things might seem for a while to be better for us, more entertaining to, to us, uh, it seems to be the intuitive way to go, the path of least resistance sometimes. There's this nagging doubt that won't go away. This is not where I should be. This is not right. So we have a, we have a, a choice to make always. But I want to, I want to tell you that even though there are rewards to be found for faithfulness and you're going to lose rewards for your, you know, self-centeredness, that the grace of God covers both areas. If you're in Christ, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not recommending that you can be a worldly Christian. I'm saying you'll lose rewards and you'll not be satisfied or content. But I am saying the grace of God covers you. Just as, just as it covered here the Israelites in this um, rehearsing of their history. So how do the people respond? Verses 16 through 18 records uh, their response. Verse 18 says, sorry, verse 16, sorry, says, so the people answered and said, far be it from us, (laughs) far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Oh, far be it from us. I mean, we'd never think of such a thing. What? What about the golden calf incident? You don't remember that one? What about Belle Pierre? What about this, this, uh, oh, that we had, you know, all of the food and all the things in Egypt? What about those murmurings and disputings? That's just like, that's, that's us. There's a willingness there. I want to call your attention to that. There is a willingness there, and I don't want to pour scorn on that, okay? 
All I want to call your attention to is that this willingness is not and cannot be followed through in the flesh. We read on here, verse 17, For the Lord our God is he who brought us up, brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and, uh, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. It's all good stuff. The problem is, they're going to forget about it. They're going to, at, at the end of Joshua's life and so on, and into the book of Judges, all of this is going to be forgotten. Just like us, you know, when, when the goodness of God and the providence of God and the faithfulness of God is told to us, or when we pause and we think, oh, God got me through that situation, and God's been good to me here, and God's been good to me in this area, and I recall all of the faithfulness of God in my life. When we're like that, then, yes, we're, we're willing to serve God, and we're willing to stay in his will, in his will. The problem is that we're not always there. We, we often don't rehearse the goodness of God in our pasts. We forget about God's faithfulness, God's goodness, don't we? And that's exactly what the people of Israel will do. We are not different than them. Oh, we're talking about three and a half thousand years ago, give or take, uh, for a few years. But humanity doesn't change. The human heart doesn't change. Our propensity to be willing but not being able to follow it up. I mean, that's continuous. But we must note here that there was, at least for a time, a period when they did obey. Look at verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. So they did it for a time. And we, if you like, under our own steam, remembering what God has done for us, we can serve the Lord, yes, under our own steam for a while, but it won't last. And it won't really be acceptable to God either. In Joshua's time, they were under the old covenant. They were under the Mosaic covenant. They, they weren't supplied with the Holy Spirit who could change their heart, who could, who could help them to die to themselves, who could help them have the ability to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. But we, as we've just celebrated, we are different in this most important of areas. 
We're not under that covenant. We're under a covenant that supplies us with the Holy Spirit. We're under a covenant that was was uh, inaugurated by the coming into the world of the Son of God himself and his sacrificial death on our behalf. And we're the beneficiaries of what Jesus has done. If you'll turn quickly to 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, I want to bring this out. 2 Corinthians in chapter 3. Paul, at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, tells uh, the, the believers there that he and his friends were ministers of the new covenant. That means that all of the ministry that he did, everything that he told them, all of the things that he told them they should be in Christ were under the auspices of the new covenant. So it was a new covenant ministry that uh, Paul conducted. But coming down a little bit here, look at verse 12 of Second Corinthians chapter 3. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the, uh, the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the old, it should be the old covenant there, okay? The, the Greek word there is diatheke, it should be translated as covenant, Because the veil is taken away in Christ. That means that the only way of having, as it were, the veil or the blindness of seeing God for who he is and being in that right right relationship with God, that living relationship with God, is through Christ. If you're not in Christ, you have a veil over you, as it were. You don't see God for who he is. That means that you you have a religion. You have a procedure that you try to follow to please God and to impress God. But in Christ, under the new covenant, which is in him, that veil is taken away. Verse 14 at the end there. But even to this day, when Moses is read, this is about the Jews uh, who were reading the, um, the old covenant, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Freedom. Liberty. Yes? You no longer in the, in the, uh, uh, the, the idea of, of uh, mariners and so on, you know, the, the call to liberty was when the ship finally docked 
in the port and you were allowed off the ship. You were no longer stuck to that ship. We are not stuck to a religion, a way of doing things to please God. We're not stuck there. We have liberty to step away from that. We have liberty to live our lives. Not license, but liberty. We don't need to keep looking over our shoulders to see if we're pleasing God or if God is happy with us or angry with us. That's law. We need to understand that we live in a sphere of grace. That's how God sees us. Why? Because we're not under the old covenant, we're under the new covenant, and under the new covenant, our response, our willingness is accepted. Was the people's willingness accepted in the book of Joshua that we're reading? Well, let's read on. Joshua chapter 24, verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. For he is is holy. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. Now, the particular transgressions and sins that he has in mind is forsaking him and going to serve other gods, which, of course, Israel did. You cannot serve God in your own strength, in your own power. You cannot serve God acceptably outside of grace. You can only accept the grace of God and serve him in that way, in freedom, without self-condemnation. Understanding that he's taken the curse. Understanding that he's taken all of your sins, past, present, and future, upon him. Understanding that, hey, you're not good enough, but that's okay. That's okay. That's all understood. It's understood in heaven, and it's understood by you. You're not good enough in and of yourselves, but God doesn't look at you. In and of yourself. He looks at you in Jesus. He looks at you in Christ, his beloved son. He looks at you not only in Christ the son, but Christ the resurrected son. The glorified son. That's where you stand. In the sight of God. You cannot serve the Lord if you have an idea of serving the Lord that is, oh, I can do this and God will be impressed with me. I can do this and you know, God, I'll put a, God, a smile on God's face by doing this. Forget it. You're, if you're doing this and you're seeing God in those terms, you've got the veil on. You're not seeing God for who he is. 
However, if you understand, in and of myself, I can't serve God. Under my own strength, my own steam, I can't serve God. I will turn away to other gods, okay? The God of Paul Hennebury. There's one of them. The God of the world and the allurements of the world. The God of distraction. The God of internal sins, the God of temptation. In my own strength, I'm going to turn away from to these other gods. Yes, I might for a while be willing to come back, but it's not going to last for very long. However, under the new covenant in Jesus Christ, I do and can serve God. In Ephesians chapter 2, for example, we are told, well, by grace you have been saved, verse 8, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, that does away with, yeah, I'm willing to do it and I'm going to do anything that I can to impress God and to justify myself in the sight of God. No, 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 no. Paul pulls you up short there and he says, it's not of works. It's not of your own effort. It's through faith. God gifts you salvation and forgiveness. But, he goes on to say in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you can do good works as long as your good works are filtered through the righteousness of Jesus. And you're standing in him. So no, you can't serve the Lord acceptably in your own power, in your own strength, your own steam. And yes, you can serve the Lord acceptably. In fact, not just acceptably, God will reward you for your faithfulness and your work as long as that faithfulness and that work is done in the strength of God. Ephesians 1.6 tells us that we, he has made us, he has made us accepted in the beloved. Who has made us that? Well, if the beloved is Jesus, then who has made us accepted in the beloved? God the Father himself. That's God's work. You're accepted. Now, how can, how can I be accepted when I know what I'm like and I know how I drift? We've been doing this in the, our study of Galatians in Sunday school. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Yes, 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 that's me. That's you. 
I'm roping you in too because I know that that you, you feel the same as I do in this if you're a believer. This is the way that we are. But then we come back and we stop bemoaning ourselves and we come back and we look at verses like this that says, wait on a minute, hold on, you're accepted. You're accepted in the beloved. It's by grace that you've been saved. It's by grace that you stay saved. You think uh, God saved you by grace and now it's up to you? If that was the case, if that was the case, then in rehearsing our lives at the end of our lives and we'd stand before God, God would have to bring up all of our sins. But just like in his, uh, this rehearsal of, of uh, the past in Israel in Joshua 24, no sins were brought up, that would be the way it is with us. Just as God could call Lot righteous, not bringing up his sins, just as uh, God could bring up the faithfulness of Abraham in every, you know, every part of his life, he followed me fully, well, did he? Not in everything. Okay? But God, you know, he overlooks those things because of his grace. First John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, tell us, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. But if our hearts do not condemn us because we know the grace of God, because we know, we know we're no good, But we should not have our hearts condemn us because we know who will not condemn us. Just like the woman at the well. Go and tell your husband. I have no husband. You're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five, actually. And the one that you're with at the moment is not your husband. But it's a condemnation. Is there condemnation or is there grace? Because she's trusted in Jesus. So Jesus does not condemn her. He knows her sins. Look, it says, God knows our hearts. But God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our sins. God's grace covers us. In ending here, I want to turn to uh, Zechariah. Yes, Zechariah, chapter three. We did this in the. It just came to me in the in the Galatians study, and I, I thought, well, I, I, this is a great way to finish the sermon. No, forget that. Zechariah chapter three. Look, listen to this, verse one. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. 
Well, Satan's there and he's confident. He thinks he has a whole bunch of things to, to uh, accuse Joshua the high priest of. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Has not God reached his hand into the fire and plucked Joshua out and saved him? Joshua, verse 3, was clothed with filthy garments. He's before God. In his... In his filthy garments, in his unrighteousness, yes, in and of himself, and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and will clothe you with rich robes. Satan thinks he's got all kinds of things to accuse us of. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, he does. All kinds of things. Things that we've forgotten. He's, he remembers. But if we're in Jesus Christ, if we're accepted in the beloved, then he has nothing to accuse us of that God wants to hear. Do you understand that? Now, God, uh, Satan can whisper in our own ears so that grace is no longer grace. You know, we think, well, yes, I understand the grace of God, but I, you know, I've really fouled up. I messed up today in thought and deed and everything else. You know, maybe I got angry. Maybe I, uh, you know, gave into a, a particular sin. Maybe I, um, was dishonest, or I don't know. Just choose a sin. And therefore, the grace, I need to kind of restore myself before I can get into grace again. No. That's not grace. That's works. If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. We need to accept that we're accepted. Because that will what? That will lure us back rather than beating ourselves up with recriminations about how sinful we are and not being able to serve God and being discouraged and despondent because of that. So that we can't take a step forward with God without feeling that we messed up again. That's not grace. Grace is rather being confident that we can come right into the throne room of God. If that means that, yes, the first thing we do is confess. We did it again, Lord. We confess. We know that God is faithful and he'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just accept it. I mean, don't take it for granted, but just accept it. And go on with the Lord. 
then you can serve him acceptably. We are in so much, uh, 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 so much of a, a better situation than Joshua and the people of Israel ever were. They renewed a covenant there. They renewed the, the uh, Mosaic covenant. And they kept it for a short time. We don't need to renew any covenant. Okay? What we do is we commemorate a covenant. We rejoice in the covenant. We celebrate our freedom because we're in the new covenant. Why? Because God's grace has come to us. And if you've received Jesus as your Savior, you have received that grace. And it's grace that doesn't go away. It's the grace in which God sees you now. And will do until he brings you safely. By his power, by his goodness. To that day, that time when he rejoices at your presence before him with exceeding joy in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we don't deserve your grace, but we accept it. We accept it because it's been wrought by Jesus, our Savior. According to your plan and your purpose, you have saved us, and we're accepted in the beloved. We're under the new covenant, not the old law. And therefore, our service to you, Lord, it's not a perfect service. It's far from it but it's acceptable to you. Help us, Heavenly Father, when we stray, and we do stray. Help us to remind ourselves of your goodness. Help us to understand that you understand us and therefore be encouraged to pick ourselves up, Heavenly Father, to allow you your will and your way in our lives and to move on rejoicing knowing that we're at peace with you. You're not going to bring up our our sins. You're not going to bring up our faults. You love us unconditionally in Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Amen.